This is a remote dating podcast where we share outlandish dating stories from people struggling with the new dating landscape. In season two, Be My Carry On Baggage, we look at how the coronavirus pandemic is going to impact the future of dating. We'll get insights from digital nomads who have been navigating dating under extreme circumstances for years, as well as stories from people who have been locked down in love. Today, we're going to be covering porn. Yep, that's right. The joys and downfalls of porn, the history of porn, the ethics of porn, and the very new genre of coronavirus porn. This is season two, episode five, Bridgerton over troubled water. I'm Ellie. And I'm Kayla. We're your hosts for Dating Abroad, a podcast about unconventional dating stories. In this episode, we'll be talking about all things porn with a good friend of ours, nomad and patron of the podcast, Abigail. She won this slot as a guest during one of our monthly soirees, and as soon as she mentioned her fascination with 1920s porn, there could be no other topic for her episode. We're really excited to dive into this season two sexisode, but first, it's time for a video call named Desire. In this segment, we give you a little update on our dating escapades over the past week. OMG! For once, I have updates! <laughs> woo <Woo-hoo! laughs> Alright, my tea, you tell, you regale me with your tales. Okay, well, so listeners, it's been a couple of months since we recorded our last video call named Desire, because we didn't have one in the last episode, and since then... I actually think I've squeezed in more dating than I did in the whole of 2020. All in the name of podcast research, of course. (laughs) So I basically, I take back everything bad I've ever said about the dating apps. Thanks to Portuguese Tinder, I have met and kind of dated two guys since the last episode. And it has been so fun to be back in the game. Um, Okay, so... First, there was the sexy Portuguese surfer, who I think I must have met at the beginning of December, which means we haven't recorded one of these for a while. So he has a very dreamy bio. He bakes sourdough bread for a living, and he lives in a super cute cottage on the edge of a cliff. He has a sunset-facing daybed, which I think he built himself. Um, and we have like flirty chit chat and he's traveled quite a bit, but I will be honest, we don't have much to talk about. It really is just about the chemistry. (laughs) And since this is a sex episode, having been deprived of that for pretty much the whole of 2020, it has been extremely fun. So for anyone who has been similarly celibate in 2020, it really is like riding a bike. (laughs) Um, But actually, that is not all. Um, So more recently, at the beginning of January, the sexy surfer has actually been usurped by another guy who I met on Tinder. So this one, this one is Irish, lives in Lisbon, about Mm -hmm. an hour from where I am. Um, He's a writer too. He's been a nomad for about the same amount of time as me, which is quite hard to find. Um, And yeah, this is totally different. So we have been on two 24-hour dates 
and this time rather than it being all about the chemistry it really was all about the conversation it was so easy and relaxed and fun um and he does know I have a dating podcast so I won't go into it too much but but it feels like there could be potential obviously though it is a global pandemic so after two dates with him there was another lockdown here so I now have no idea when I'll be able to see him again and um yeah I now kind of understand those people who at the beginning of the first lockdown had just like met someone they quite liked but you know it was a bit early to lock down together um and then you're just separated but yeah so we're keeping in touch we have some virtual dating plans so stay tuned that was my update very exciting anything can happen (laughs) (laughs) yeah we'll see it's uh it's fun to be getting excited about dating again that is very exciting. Um, I have not been excited about dating. <laughs> I have not. I have not been in the game since uh, September because I think October was the last time we we recorded our video call named Desire. Um, mm. Yeah, I've been not on the apps, not in the game at all since then. I've not been turned around to the apps like you have. <laughs> <laughs> like, when can I just like do things, fun things in person? Um, and just also like with the pandemic, uh, because I am like closer to home, it's like, okay, well, like, am I gonna see my parents or am I gonna go on a date with a new person? <laughs> uh, and it's like, you know, I haven't, I also haven't seen any of my friends like since uh, the beginning of October. So yeah, it's just kind of bottom of my priority list at the moment. Um, and other than attempting to see some friends and family when possible, I've just been on my own, uh, writing away, clacking away at the keyboard. And uh, in December, I published a new book. Yay! Um, back to like all the spare time you tend to have when you're not dating. <laughs> I guess like not able to like see your friends or do anything fun. There's, you know, a lot of extra time to go around. So yeah, this book is called The Nomadic Art of Budget Travel. I know that we're not allowed to travel right now, but I think it's like dreaming for the end of this year or the beginning of 2022 when you can get ready to plan. And yeah, it is a budget travel book, but it's not your typical kind of finding bargains, finding cheap flights, kind of tip-based travel book, although there is some of that in there. But it's really about how by searching for immersive experiences and for going slower, your trip's going to be a lot cheaper and also a lot more fun because, I mean, as us long-term travelers know, if when you can get really into a place and like meet interesting people, those are always the most fun memories, not like staying in a hotel and rushing around to tourist destinations. So those things are also like fun to incorporate into your trip, but not every day. So yeah, the book is called The Nomadic Art of Budget Travel. Uh, it was the number one new release in the travel writing category on Amazon. So that was quite And yeah, you can just search for that and find it. I guess we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, yeah, it was it was nice to to be able to write about travel felt very cathartic, although it also like made me feel homesick for being on the road <laughs> going through those edits. But yeah, that's what I've been up to other than dating. <laughs> and um, so on that note, I think it's time to move into our main discussion. Gone with the Wi-Fi. 
welcome, Abigail. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are so glad to have you on to talk about uh, porn. Veronica, we hear you. Yay! So a little caveat, I guess, for our listeners. None of us are really porn experts, uh, but we are all very opinionated on porn and erotica and all things general sex. So we're going to have this discussion, but uh, take it or leave it. <laughs> Feel free to send in your own opinions as well. So I guess to start, I just want to know from uh, our patrons and co-hosts, uh, what do you what do you think of porn? Do you watch it? Do you care if your partner watches it? What are your general thoughts and feelings? So I do not watch very much porn these days, although when I was younger and I was just starting to have sex, I did so on a more frequent basis than I do now. And obviously the main objective of that was always to have fun and explore my sexuality. But also I think that I was driven by a sense of curiosity about finding out about like the full spectrum of human sexuality and all the different activities and types of people that um, are out there. And Unfortunately, I think that porn did play an educational role for me for a bit as well, because I wasn't always sure what to expect from sexual encounters when I first started having them. And I was kind of under the impression that like the question of like, what should sex look like? Or like, what do you guys like was something that you could just Google, which now of course feels totally (laughs) ridiculous to me. But at the time I um, thought that that was something that you could just find on your computer and you didn't have to ask your individual partner and find out for each person. Um, And unfortunately, I think that if you're young and you don't know where to go for good information on these questions, um, porn is so ubiquitous online that it's easy for it to just rush in and fill that vacuum. Um, Thinking about these days and looking less on my past and more in my present, I have less interest in porn and I generally prefer um, erotica. And the reason for that is just that it's easier to imagine yourself in the situation when you're just reading text, I think. But it is really important to me to keep a sex positive attitude towards porn and not paint it all with the same brush, even though I think some of it does perpetuate some ideas about sex that can be really harmful if people consume them in a vacuum and that's their own sex education. Um, I do think it is important to um, maintain a positive and open attitude for people who do enjoy it. And I don't mind if my partners watch porn. Interesting how you talk about seeking porn as a way to like see what sex is and what do men like because I have kind of a similar experience. So I also do not watch very much porn and never really did, but I also read erotica. And I remember when I first discovered erotica and started reading it, I was like, I want to find male authors. Like, I just want to read erotica by men because I want to know what men like and what men find sexy. Uh, And now that's done like a whole 360, I'm like, this was written by a man, I'm not reading it. Or like, if I'm reading it, man I don't want to read it anymore <laughs> um but yeah I've, I've watched a little bit of porn mostly like I don't know if anyone remembers that pirates porno which came out maybe I don't know 10 or 15 years ago but it was like the highest budget porno ever and it had like a really elaborate plot it was like honestly pretty entertaining just like as a film but obviously that mm. was terrible and <laughs> I watched it with like a group of friends in university so we were all just like kind of laughing at it I don't think it was like very erotic but it was like it was just well done like you could just admire it uh, as a work of art which I don't think can be said for a lot of porn <laughs> um 
And yeah, I have tried to watch it now and again with partners because I'm like, oh, I want to see like what you're watching and what you like. So we'll like watch one together. Uh, and it just doesn't really do it for me. I don't, I also don't mind if my partners watch porn, but I think there's like caveats to that. I think I've just been lucky that I've never had a, a partner that like watched porn every day or something like that. Uh, whereas I have friends who like had partners that would like watch porn every day and they would have like three different screens, three different videos and it was like very intense. So if it gets to that level, uh, that's obviously a problem, but I don't know. It's kind of like with drinking. If someone has a glass of wine every day, that's not a problem for me to date them. But like if someone has a, an alcohol problem, that's obviously a, a different story. Yeah, agreed. I'm the same. Like, I don't mind if my partner watches it, but if, you know, they're compulsively watching it for hours every day, I think that would be a worry. But yeah, I think I went in the opposite direction to you, Abigail. I never really watched porn when I was younger. Not that I watch a lot now, but... (laughs) but in my teens, I remember, I think the first time I ever watched it was when my first long-term boyfriend at uni, so I must have been about 19, suggested that we watch porn together back in the DVD age. And, um, and yeah, I just didn't get it at all. I mean, I don't think it was the best quality porn, but it felt like pretty brutal and like it wasn't about the women's pleasure at all, you know, standard the women were very submissive and I was just like how can this turn you on um so I don't know I think that experience just put me off for quite a while and then since then I've obviously realized that all porn isn't like that but um but yeah it's never been something I got into in a big way although I would say I'm getting more curious now and I've dipped a little bit into like some like feminist porn recently and more natural stuff and I would be interested in exploring it further. I have kind of a follow-up question then to all this. Do you lot remember like was there a turning point of I want to watch porn because my partner is or because I want to learn what men like uh, to like flipping that to female pleasure and wanting to figure out what you like? because I I do have some idea Uh, Mm. I stumbled upon a site a website when I was in university called Scarletine and it was like a feminist sex education website and forum and I think that was like the beginning of my journey to like that was I think the first time I had really found something feminist at all to be honest other than like a girl power superhero whatever and it was Mm. just like talking about sex and body hair and relationships and they had mentors who would respond to the forum posts and it was it was very life-changing I think for me it just really opened up a whole new way of thinking and there was like I remember reading once like trying to find out ways of like how to remove hair down there and I found this post on Scarletine and the first sentence was like first of all you don't have to remove any hair but like if you mm. want to here are the ways and I was like my mind was blown I was like you don't have to remove my hair like that <laughs> felt like an option for me because everyone just like removed their like hair and then hair down there was like maybe a little bit more flexibility but like you just removed your body hair and that was it and the fact that like that wasn't the same as brushing your teeth you didn't have to do that I remember that being really mind-blowing and then 
just focusing on female pleasure, the idea that like you didn't necessarily have to reciprocate something, the idea that you should like talk about what you want and direct your partner um, and that you should do lots and lots of foreplay, like all of those things started coming up then. And then I think from there, it just started <coughs> branching out into other areas and I started seeking out other resources. Mm. Um, but I, I think that's just like continued into my late 20s and, and early 30s. Like I feel like I'm still discovering those resources and discovering more about what I like and, and what I want and how to navigate the world uh, from like a, an equal standpoint to the sexual pleasure of men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I agree that as I've got older, I would definitely watch porn for different reasons. Because, you know, yeah, when you're younger, you, yeah, you're doing it more to figure out what men like, and it all ends up being like quite performative. But no, I would say, I would say that's a good point and that I would watch it for different reasons now. I would agree with that. Yeah. I don't think that there was a specific turning point where like a switch was flipped for me, but I definitely do think that like, especially in the first few years after I finished college, there um, was a lot of learning that I was doing about feminism and just how like women move through the world um, and thinking about that in a more explicitly political way. And um, with that, I think came a greater desire to apply some of those same ideas to the sexual realm and think about like, okay, what, um, like, are there things that I am pressuring myself to do or frameworks that I'm adopting that maybe aren't centering myself and my pleasure as much as they could be. Hmm. I wonder as well, before we get even deeper into this discussion, do you think that we should maybe at least articulate in our minds like the difference or is there a difference between like porn and erotica? Hmm. I guess like I was thinking of, of porn more as like videos and photos of explicitly real people doing sex, whereas erotica is more as like drawings and paintings and, and writing. But I'm also wondering if it has to do also with like how explicit the sex acts are and how much story is involved. Um, I think that that's a really good question because I think that whenever I try to make a clear definition to differentiate porn from erotica, there's always a counterexample that kind of confuses that. Like, for example, I would mostly agree with the definition that porn is um, videos or photos made using real people. And then erotica is text or drawings or things that, um, that that are made up by the artist. But then you have hentai, which like looks and feels very much like porn, even though it's hand-drawn and animated. So I don't know. It's it's difficult to say. Ellie, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, the thing that I was thinking about that was that you can differentiate porn from erotica, thinking from an ethics standpoint, you know, with porn where it's like real people doing real things um there are other issues like are they being paid properly do they feel comfortable with what they're doing um whereas those issues don't come into it really if it's just if it's a made-up story or a hand-drawn thing 
I would agree with that, Ellie. I think my biggest concern, whether it's um, porn or text or hand-drawn images or anything, is um, the rights and consent of the people who are being depicted. And I don't think there's any type of body or consensual behavior that doesn't belong in porn or doesn't belong in erotica. Um, the important thing is just that everyone involved feels comfortable with it and the audience understands that this is acting and not a mirror of real life. And I would say those are my criteria for for um, anything I'm consuming in this manner to feel ethical. And I do think it's easier to just like go down the list and check off all the boxes when it's erotica or animation and there aren't real people involved. Yeah, definitely. Because I think like, you know, you can have ethical porn with real people and it's just, yeah, as the viewer, very hard to know um, <laughs> when that is. And I think just like as, as an industry, it is very hard to manage and to regulate there was that documentary that Rashida Jones did that I'm forgetting the name of that kind of shined a lot of light on the porn industry and how it can be uh, very a very positive experience for the actors if they become mm. one of the most famous ones uh, but then for everybody else it can kind of be this like glorious thing when you first start out and then you have to do more and more niche things and more and more degrading things and just the ethics of it all get murkier and murkier. Um, so yeah, I do think it is possible to find that video porn that is is ethical, but it is a lot more difficult. Mm, yeah. The point you made, Abigail, about the realism of it and understanding that it's acting is so interesting because sometimes I will talk to men about it uh, luckily no one I've been in a relationship with I don't think but just people that I've dated I will kind of talk to them a bit about it and they'll be like oh yeah I like I like amateur porn I like reddit porn like stuff that's just like real that's just like women who want to do it and I'm like uh, I don't think you understand what porn is <laughs> and I mean I'm sure there are people that you, you know like maybe we can talk about this a little bit but like you know people send nudes or masturbation videos to people that they're dating and I mean I'm sure there are people who post dick pics and vajayjay pics and boo pics or whatever on the internet just for because for whatever reason they enjoy doing it but uh, <laughs> regular and consistent uh, pornography so yeah it's, it's interesting the, the amount of men that I've talked to I, I don't know how if women feel this way I have not come like in my friend group I don't think any women feel this way but I'm sure there are uh that like certain porn is more real because it's filmed in an immature way and that they wouldn't like a, a porn star because that's too fake I personally think it's a, a false distinction but I'm also wondering like is is there a difference between you know the very professional typical porn where you know all the women kind of have a boob job and have super like emotionally attractive but like plus convention plus like with a boob job with maybe Botox like with a lot of makeup on uh, versus women who look more quote-unquote average um, and who are maybe filming it on a webcam or filming it on a fancy camera and making it look like a webcam like so I personally think it's a false distinction so I'm wondering if you think it's a false distinction yes or no and if it is um, have you come across that attitude and is it harmful? I think 
the important thing is just not to make assumptions either way about whether something is real or fake. I think um, this is this is so interesting because I think this is a type of media literacy that goes beyond just porn and encompasses mm. all media that you find online. But I think people should always just keep in mind that just because something looks real and unfiltered and unmediated online doesn't mean that it is, but also it doesn't mean that it's not. So I think rather than making assumptions either way about whether something is fake or how real it is, I think just like, even though the human brain doesn't like ambiguity, I think the most honest thing to do is just try to hold it in your head that like stuff went on like before and after the shooting of this film that I don't know about and like whatever I'm seeing, it's not the full picture. So I'm just going to be mindful of that and try to seek out um, materials that are ethical and real within those confines and understanding those limitations. I really like it as a, yeah, looking at it as media literacy, because I think that's exactly what it is. And speaking of media literacy, sort of, not really, well, let's talk about coronavirus porn. And yeah, I mean, I think that we all know that the meme game of coronavirus is is really good. Uh, but I think there's this whole underground porn and erotica movement of coronavirus. Have you guys seen it or experienced it? I have not seen any coronavirus porn, but if you guys have, I would love to know about it. Neither have I, actually. I feel the same way. I would love to hear more about it, but I haven't seen any or sought it out since this started. Well, good thing I have a reading recommendation for everybody on coronavirus. Oh, it's Yeah, I've seen, there's been like a ton, I mean, as I mentioned, I don't really watch porn, but I've seen a ton of coronavirus-themed erotica. Uh, and it's really interesting because uh, I feel like oftentimes erotica, like you kind of, you have to suspend, suspend your disbelief to a certain extent to be like, oh, why would these like random strangers get into this like, what's with a stranger situation? Um, <clears throat> or why are couples suddenly having this like really intense sex? Like you kind of have to, to think of something that the pandemic just like gives you a reason. Like you hear your neighbor masturbating and nobody's gotten laid in ages and you just like go over there and you fuck and like that's believable whereas not COVID would not be believable. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting. <laughs> In that way, it kind of like sets up for so many sexual situations. Well, um, I, I don't have loads to add to that, but and this isn't strictly coronavirus porn, but um, I did do some research into the porn stats since the pandemic. Um, so unsurprisingly, it has increased. So just to show the listeners that we have done a little bit of research, um, Pornhub saw a growth of 24% in March and OnlyFans, which is a bit different. It lets users interact with and directly pay their favourite performers. They were getting 200k new subscribers a day, which is pretty mental. But what I did find interesting in the course of my research was also that the the pandemic is changing the way that porn is shot. So obviously there's no social distancing in porn, um, so they they can't shoot porn like they used to. Um, So it's kind of led to a growth of independent productions. So like the rest of us, uh, porn stars are working from home, 
like building home studios and from the things that I read it's uh, kind of leading to a more speech marks authentic um, and personal feel um, than maybe more traditional porn which I thought was quite interesting. Interesting. And I mean, speaking of Pornhub and a few of the other things we've talked about, about learning from sex, I know that Pornhub has like now has a sex education component of their website. And like, now I want to kind of go look at it to be like, I wonder if media literacy and like how they make porn is part of it so that you could like learn mm. uh, realistically set expectations from like fantasy and reality. So. <laughs> But um, yeah, what yeah. role do you guys think porn plays in sex education? I just saw a headline on Twitter about Pornhub like purging a bunch of videos from their site. And I like didn't click the tweet because I'm lazy, although I should have before recording this episode. But um, we should maybe find out like were they doing that because there were concerns about like the consent of the performers or like what, what the issue was there? Ooh, okay, I'm going to take us on a one minute break of our porn discussion to say that uh, for our patrons, I think maybe we are going to check out the uh, sexual education part of Pornhub and maybe record a little mini-sode for our patrons. So if anybody would like to become a patron to hear us uh, get sexually educated by Pornhub, you can find us, L-U-C-L-U-R-L. Uh, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash dating abroad will we do it for all the tiers probably i think so yeah i think everyone deserves to to hear about this so a month up you could us watching watching after that little infomercial um, so what was the question? The, the, your last question you asked was about uh, <sighs> and sex education. Mm. Yeah. And like outside of Pornhub, I think what's interesting, and now I remember we said we were going to look up what it was, but I can't remember if, it, if we did. Our couple way back from season one who lived in a van together had told us uh, a recommendation about a sex course. Um, but I'm also a big fan of OMG Yes, which is this. So this is interesting back to the, the distinction between erotica and porn and education and porn because you do watch women masturbate, but I would never have thought of it as porn. Um, but basically women, they've surveyed a bunch of women and found out things that feel good for most women, a, a variety of techniques. And then they have women come in and talk about the techniques and then demonstrate them. Um, and mm. I think there's... I was going to say I think there's more stuff like that, but I don't really know. I mean, I think there's a lot of courses about like strip teasing and like bringing out the erotic. I'm not sure if there are other ones as methodical as OMGS. Well, I actually did look into that site that the Van Life couple uh, talked about. It's called Sex Hacker Pro. And <laughs> oh, I've forgotten the name of the guy. But Sex Hacker Pro is, is the name of the course. And he is an Asian guy who, um, you know, he does the... I only watched the introduction video, 
but it was talking about how, you know, he's a, you know, relatively skinny Asian guy and he was saying he'd never had any, you know, decent sex education or anything. And um, it's basically him teaching women about female pleasure um from like loads of research that he's done so you know you see him sitting at a laptop like doing all this extensive research um but then it does seem that he I don't know I wasn't sure about it because the the introduction video was also him like actually shagging his clients to show them how to get pleasure and so I I don't know I do feel like there were lots of good topics in there and things that like women would want to learn about but I I wasn't sure how comfortable I was with it just curious what made you uncomfortable about having about him including the demonstrations in that I don't know I just It just, I wasn't sure if it felt like he was getting more out of it than the clients, but it didn't really feel like that. So I think I might, I might be, I might be judging it too harshly because I do feel like he provided really good information. I mean, I do think that there is always an ethical question of a, of a teacher and a student or like a therapist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would just like rub me the wrong way as well. <laughs> mm. Okay, so we made, I think this is a good segue because we made a promise in the title of this episode. <laughs> why does this man, like, why will nobody tell women what sex is? How is it possible that they don't know when we know unmarried women are having sex? Uh, why don't they do more foreplay the first time they have sex? I have a lot of questions, but I want you guys to talk about it first because I feel like you had more thoughts. I mean, Bridgerton is my current guilty pleasure. I was watching it for research purposes, obviously, just uh, a couple of hours before we recorded this. <laughs> um, and I, I know that there are a lot of questions um, but I do think with something like Bridgerton, because, you know, it's so fantastical, it's like, it's set in the Regency period, there's like a diverse cast, it's clearly not realistic, this programme. So I feel like you kind of suspend disbelief, and even though the sex is not realistic at all, it's kind of okay if you, you don't see it as like a, a mirror for real life. And it's fun. And it does turn me on. I'll admit it. Ellie, I think these are all really good points. And I will also agree that Bridgerton is a lot of fun and something that really turned me on too, but is not realistic. But one thing that I do appreciate about it in terms of realism is I think one of the reasons that the sex scenes in that show, in addition to just being like quite explicit and well filmed, I think mm -hmm. one of the reasons that they resonate so much with people is that they don't start until like halfway through the season when if you're five episodes into the season when this stuff starts, you're probably pretty invested in the love story of the characters who are doing this stuff. And 
So I think with Bridgerton, like more than any porn or erotica that I've seen, you have this like deep sense of context and um, the characters aren't just anonymous people. These are characters that you actually like feel attached to and have some personality to them. And I think for a lot of people who find that porn doesn't really resonate with them, maybe that sense of context and personality is what's missing. And that's why the sex scenes in Bridgerton, I think, land in a different way for some people and have been so um, so popular and caused so much excitement. Yeah, I think those are all good points. Um, and I think maybe the reason it doesn't resonate with me so much is because like by the time the two main characters start having sex, I was already really over them as a couple. And I was like, you guys just need too emotionally unavailable. And like, I wasn't into it by that point. I was like, you should have married the prince. He was obviously like a better person and like better lifestyle choice for you. Um, But the Duke of Hastings is so hot. He's really hot. (laughs) (laughs) Like he is good and bad mechanically, but like, I don't know, he was just like, I just felt like he was like really moody sometimes for no reason and like kept secrets and like said things in ways that were purposely misleading and then tried to like blame her for manipulating him when he had been manipulating her all along so like uh, agreed yeah started, which is like you know what, what made the story interesting I guess but like by the time they got there I was like really over them as a couple and then the sex wasn't as good as I thought it might have been but like in the first two episodes, I was like, oh, I can't wait for them to start banging. But then <laughs> I was like, this is just kind of weird. And I was hoping there was going to be more foreplay. And especially the first time they did it, I was like, we're like, yeah, he just went straight in there, didn't he? <laughs> like, You're not going to go down on her. Like, oh, and I, I'm trying to remember the name of this book that I read a few years ago. It's one of those series of like the pre. Neolithic like period kind of first humans and this like guy like is trying to I can't remember he's on some mission he ends up like in this tribe and for whatever reason they're like oh you're gonna take this girl's virginity and he's like my lot in life I guess I'll have to like good thing I know what I'm doing is the trick to having sex with a woman for the first time is to like go down on her for an hour before you have sex obviously in tv you can't do an hour of it oh I don't know you can do a montage of going down (laughs) (laughs) just I would have liked a little like it was just for a show that I would say targeted women it was very penetration focused yeah I would say that was true he does go down on her a couple times well he goes down once and then she's like shall we finish this and he's like no (laughs) (laughs) that was the only time I really remember him going down on her (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Other than that, it's just like penetration station. And I'm like, okay, I mean, like, it looks like nice penetration, but also, like, it just feels like that would be painful to just go straight for it. Unless, or what if he had one of those sex toys, like, she had like balls in her all the time and he was like vibing her during the day. So she was like always ready. Well, Fifty Shades style. This is my head cannon now. <laughs> <laughs> the only way it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The thing of sex being unrealistic on TV and film is a funny one. I was talking about this with uh, with the guy who 
I mentioned earlier in video called Name Desire. We already started talking about porn on a regular basis. That, yes. Well, he he said that he feels like sex on film and on TV is more misleading than sex in porn because they sort of, you know, make it seem so much better than it is. But I was kind of like... They couldn't really portray it realistically, could they, in a film? Like you say, like you can't have an hour of a guy going down on a girl before penetration and, you know, you're not going to show the messiness of, like, getting a tissue afterwards or whatever, like all the real things that happen during sex. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess in a way it's just okay and that you just suspend disbelief and don't, think this is what it's really like but then some people younger people especially might not do that and that's when it gets dangerous I guess that they think that's what sex is really like yeah because I do think that there is in tv and film and I think to an extent in court as well this idea that it's sex is penetration and like Mm. I even had a partner say to me once like oh you don't even seem like you like sex that much I was like what do you mean he was like, well, like, really like when I go down on you. And I was like, well, that's like, I would consider that sex. Like, I guess technically it's, you know, it's not penetrating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sex, that's what they mean. And yeah, so I do think, and I think it's interesting because like, yeah, it's still fun to watch that part of it. But then it's like, well, hey, I'm not really seeing reflected what I like. Like, I want to see the eroticization of like what I like on the screen. Mm. Um, and funner version of it um but yeah and then I think it is if you know thinking of what we were talking about earlier how like when we were younger seeking a point in erotica could often be about trying to figure out what men like and I think you are trying to figure out that when you're young because you mm. are, you know entering the world of having sexual partners and you want to be a good partner um if that's kind of what you're exposed to and that's seen as like the super sexy way of sex and then you try to do that and it's painful or just like not that pleasurable then you kind of feel like you're you're doing it wrong or there's something not right or like I guess you could just like go masturbate in the bathroom afterwards but like you shouldn't let your partner know Mm. yeah I'm not sure I don't know uh, if anyone did research on like if that impacts people in that way what younger people's expectations I did um (laughs) so I found I found a few things about this um and yeah I I thought it was interesting because you know as you know older more mature experienced people we kind of are able to realize that sex in porn or sex on film isn't what it's really like but there is a lot of research about how um how it can have a detrimental effect on attitudes towards consent sexual health and body image for young people so there were things like some stats of like 30 percent of young people said real sex hadn't lived up to their expectations from watching porn and another one uh with sort of an expert saying that from young people who have watched porn, um, a lot of women then didn't end up prioritizing their own pleasure and and they wouldn't even talk about that with their partner because, you know, that's the expectation that you get. 
No, that's interesting. And yeah, I'm bringing up consent too. I was thinking of Bridgerton, like when she forces him to manipulate instead of her, like that's just straight up rape. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, he, he lies to her on a very essential issue. He says he, he can't have children when really he doesn't want to have children. And I think that is a very clear and intentional lie on his part. And then she mm. rapes him to try to have children. And then the fact that they just like are all lovey-dovey and happy at the end. Is, is, yeah, is I was, um, in preparation for this episode, I was talking with a former partner about porn and different types of porn and the question of whether certain types of porn have a more harmful impact on sex and relationships than others. And he made a really interesting point that I completely agree with and he articulated it so well. Basically, what he said is that there's not necessarily any dynamic between consenting adults that is wrong to show in porn or media. But the problem is that any sexual encounter, you should have conversations around it, around what someone is willing to do, what someone wants to do, likes, dislikes, boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. And porn is really not good at showing those conversations that need to happen around that um, because there's no context. It's just like the movie starts and there's a sexual encounter. And um, I do think that with a show like Bridgerton where the sex scenes are kind of treading that line between porn, erotica and depictions of sex and fiction that is otherwise not focused on that, um, there is a really big missed opportunity to show those conversations and especially to do some education around consent um, with mm -hmm. that scene with Daphne and the Duke. And they did kind of mess that up as much as I appreciate other aspects of uh, what they were trying to do. Yeah. And like it was it was really weird because I did appreciate it for her as a character. Mm -hmm. It was also just like, oh, and then you just never addressed that sexual assault and that. That raping is such a, mm. uh, for lack of a better word, hot topic right now of so many people who are, are struggling to understand those boundaries between consent and assault when it's not like a violent stranger doing it. Um, yeah, totally. And to plug another TV show that was very good at addressing that. Have you guys seen I May Destroy You? No. Oh my god, you've got to watch it. It's it's all about consent. Um, it's kind of part of it is uh, this woman looking back on sexual encounters that she's had and realizing that they hadn't realized at the time, but looking back, she was like, "Oh wow, like that was rape." Because, for example, he had uh, taken the condom off without telling her, which is basically what what Daphne did <laughs> um, but I May Destroy You is done incredibly well and is realistic and does address those issues like much better than anything anything else I've ever seen address them. I think this kind of taps into the fact that managing consent and kind of reprogramming society to not be as shitty as it is around issues of sexual consent is an issue in a project that is so much bigger than porn and erotica. Um, and I think that porn is not designed to or capable of 
um, of addressing this issue and re-educating people. It's not, this is, that's not the job of pornography. And I think the fact that so much of that, of that job of modeling and educating is falling to pornography says less about porn and more about the fact that we are just really failing at educating people about these issues in other contexts. Yeah, that's very true because it's like should should fiction and should porn be the place where we're educating people about this? <laughs> no, yeah. really that's just not its role, is it? But like you say, it it highlights the fact that that education in that area is terrible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so speaking of all of this, uh, porn and fiction and education and how all of that ties together. I'm curious on a personal level, or I guess also if you've done research, has porn positively or negatively impacted your real life experiences, both uh, porn or fiction that you've consumed or that your partner has consumed? So this, I think, was more of an issue for me in the past than it is now, fortunately. With younger guys, um, when I was at an age to be having sex with guys who were in their teens or their early 20s, I occasionally saw it give them misconceptions about what sex is supposed to look like and what bodies are supposed to be like. Like, For example, I have hair in a part of my body that most porn performers do not. And one time when I was 23, I was with a partner who was two years younger than me. So I think he was 21 at the time. And he actually said to me, why do you have hair there? I really don't think that that's normal. And I don't think he was trying to be a jerk about it. Like he was actually concerned and wanted me to go see a doctor about it. um, As I'm getting into my thirties, fortunately, and the guys that I have sex with are usually a bit older than me. So they're in their like mid thirties plus that sort of thing has not been as much of an issue. Fortunately, there has not been a repeat occurrence of that. And I did not ever go to the doctor about my pubic hair. So Um, But that ended up okay. But I think people who get these misconceptions can be deprogrammed, but it takes life experience and education and good communication. And um, unfortunately, I think for a lot of people, the first like one, two, five, 10 years that you're having sex, that is really something that's not present in the world. Yeah. I think that's so interesting and that just reminded me I will get into more of my sexual experiences um, but that just reminded me of a thought I had when I was traveling through Iceland and going to a lot of the hot pools and saunas and it's just very normal for everybody to walk around normal in the change room and I feel like in the western world that's the stereotype that like older women and older men do that Um, but I think in Scandinavia and a lot of other parts of the world it's just like common to just like see a lot more naked bodies and for me I'm like often like growing up like I saw my own naked body maybe of a couple of my closest friends I would occasionally see their naked body and I would see naked bodies on tv so that's what I that's what my comparison was to like oh my god what's wrong with my body like why do I appear there why do I have fat there like why are why do my boobs look this weird shape and then like as I am now like I guess older and older and travel more which is interesting how uh nomadism perhaps ties into this discussion just being in places where you just see more naked bodies like when I lived in Barcelona just being topless on the beach or being nude on the beach was just like average course nobody would bat an eye just being able to see more bodies it's just incredibly helpful for my own self-image 
um, and also for partners, because like things don't look so like strange when you see a variety of bodies, whereas when you're just seeing the one type of a conventionally attractive body, it can be a bit shocking when you see something that doesn't match that when you've not had any other examples. Yeah, totally. Me and my housemate were actually talking about this uh, yesterday about, you know, if you grow up seeing all these perfect bodies um, in, uh, in porn or on TV or whatever, like, and your body doesn't subscribe exactly to that, like, there's just so much shame attached to it. And shame and sex just becomes so interlinked. Um, and Abigail, like you say, now, like we're in our 30s, we, we see things a lot differently, but like for young people, yeah, it's just, it's, it's not surprising that we all grow up with very unrealistic expectations of what sex is meant to be. Yeah, and I would say I did have a partner who was older than me, actually. Like, I think he was around in his early 30s, the time we were dating. And I think he did have a lot of those expectations. And I'm not sure exactly where it came from, if it was mm. porn or TV or just, like, even though he was older, I think he had not had as that many, like, longer-term partners. So, like, it used to be like, yes, sometimes my body here is going to go out and I'm going to leave it that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I'm not sure exactly where it came from, uh, but I do feel like I have had one one longer term and a couple shorter term partners who did have those expectations. I agree, Abigail, like it is, it gets a lot better as you get like older. Um, and I feel like especially the late 20s, early to mid 30s is like the perfect age of like young enough to have grown up in a feminist mm. environment, but like old enough to like have had enough experience to put that into practice so I do think it's a really good time to be alive I guess in conclusion (laughs) (laughs) we're in our prime (laughs) (laughs) so I did extensive research on this texting uh any experts that was comfortable texting (laughs) to ask about porn watching habits um and it was so I, I have had one midterm partner who didn't never watched porn and we had really fun sex and I was really curious if any other partners watched porn or didn't watch porn and how that would measure up to my sexual experiences with them uh I realized my study is flawed because most of the partners I've had that were bad at sex did not last long enough for me to like have any contact with them now (laughs) (laughs) so most of the people that I um were good at sex but the answers actually varied quite a bit. So I had one partner who say he, he watches it occasionally uh, just to get inspiration, just to get like fresh, fresh ideas of, of things to try or just to like get his imagination started uh, when he wants to masturbate. And then I had one partner that was like, I care only about the mechanics. I don't need to see their face. I don't care what they look like. I just care about what they're doing with their hands or with their mouth or with you know like what they're mechanically doing and I'm just like very like seeing different things mechanically and like what they can actually do and I was like wow I don't think I've ever heard that before that's very interesting and um the third one I think also was like he watches it maybe oh where all point of view pornography which is like you don't see the man so it would be like you're imagining yourself directly oh 
which I also find interesting. So it was, it was quite varied in this sample size and all three of those men plus four who didn't watch porn at all, I would say we're all, all very good uh, at what they were doing. So I guess for them, it probably didn't impact uh, their expectations of me that much because like, I don't really do conventionally attractive things anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah I'm, I'm curious I was trying to get out of them and I was trying to get out of myself and I think it is possible to know like do I seek out erotica that's different and then I want to try that in real life or do I try something in real life and seek out erotica or like already know I like something and seek out erotica for that how the cycle goes and I'm not sure I think it's probably a bit of both but uh, that was funny that you said one of the guys you spoke to um, used it for ideas. I only spoke to one guy about porn, the the one from earlier. And um, he said exactly the same thing. But he said it's good for introducing new ideas. <laughs> um, but he also said he he used to watch porn and now it doesn't really do anything for him and he finds it very artificial do you find that it impacts your experiences of sex or have you ever had somebody ask you to do something or have an expectation on you that you felt like kind of like you were saying abigail with body hair that like anything like that that you felt came from porn i kind of feel like whenever a guy asks to come on my face that's from porn yeah, or wants to do 69. Yeah, that makes sense. Ew, just no. Can't multitask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think there are there are certain things. Yeah, I think those are the the two best examples of it. And I think not coincidentally, that's something those are like requests that I heard a lot, like at the beginning of my um sexual life that I don't mm. hear as much anymore <laughs> oh yeah someone oh god this might be TMI but whatever um someone fairly recently uh suggested 69 and I was just like nope <laughs> whereas in my early 20s I would have just done it um, I mean, no shaming on anyone who um, enjoys 69. I mean, I'm sure that it's popular for a reason. I just, er ergonomically, it personally does not work for me. Yeah, likewise. We're very similar in height to your partner. <laughs> and like really good at breathing through your nose. And concentrating while someone's also going down on you. All those things fall into place. <laughs> but that's interesting there's no consenting act between adults that is like a bad desire to have but then it's no. also mm -hmm. as much as like people try to be like as much as everyone is different and you have to have conversations with your partner like there are also I would say some pretty common patterns right another point that he made and that I also really agree with is that porn tends to disproportionately focus on one subset of sexual dynamics and sexual behaviors um like this sort of very aggressive like let me get it really deep inside you type thing. <laughs> there's uh there's there's nothing wrong with that of course and there are lots of people out there who enjoy that but I think that type of dynamic has 
come to so dominate mainstream porn that you have to actively search out other dynamics if that's what you want to see. And other dynamics have kind of been pushed into like niche genres. And I think that that like, because you have to actively seek out something different, a lot of people just never get to that step and, and assume that that's how all sexual encounters are. Like that's so interesting. And I wonder if porn has always been this way or if it used to be different in the past historically. Well, interesting you ask that because that was our inspiration for this episode, wasn't it? Abigail uh, telling us about her fascination with 1920s porn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same, but also they're like porn did used to be very different. And I just love looking at how some things have changed and some things have really ch- stayed the same in this genre over time. Um, I first got into this when I was in college. I was minoring in film studies and I spent a lot of time on a torrent tracker online that specializes in art films and just more obscure movies and shorts from throughout film history that are not easy to find in other places. And they have a pretty extensive library of porn from the very early days of cinema, like the 19-teens and the 1920s. And just stumbling across these materials on this tracker that I didn't, it hadn't even occurred to me that they were making porn in that age, um, got me really interested in porn from that era. Um, at that time, they were called stag films. And porn mostly consisted of amateur productions that were not made with the production values that we see today. They were done at super low budgets, not of the highest quality, and they were made by men and for men generally. Um, some of the earliest ones, it's actually so interesting, they like didn't have a grasp of continuity in filmmaking because the medium was just so new. So it's literally just like compilations of clips of different encounters or even just like disembodied penises or like you don't... <laughs> you anything and men would just get together and watch these really rough compilations at what were called stag parties and just kind of raucously enjoy them together the way that they might today with like an exotic dancer at a bachelor party or something like that um and i just think it's so interesting how now porn is seen as this thing that you like consume kind of sneakily in private and it's like a guilty pleasure but um back then it was something that you like just watch with your friends and it was this communal experience um so it's interesting how like that dynamic shifted over time Mm. the thing that i appreciate most about really old porn and especially porn from the 20s and 30s is just like how amateurish it is and this kind of gets back to what kayla was saying earlier where just because something is filmed in a certain way that we associate with it being amateurish doesn't mean that it actually is as authentic as it looks. So you've always got to keep that in mind. But at the same time, like, for example, there's this one um, old porn film that I love where the title cards between the scenes are handwritten and they have hand-drawn penises all over them. Like they were, that (laughs) look like they were drawn by a third grader. (laughs) It's just, there's something really charming about that. And a lot of these films do have a sense of fun and spontaneity to them that you don't always see in later porn. Um, Again, like I, I can't emphasize enough that you don't know what was going on behind the scenes and you don't know what these people felt about what they were doing, especially because these films were illegal and 
we don't know who was making these films or who was acting in them for um, the vast majority. But that being said, the performers do often look to me like they're having a genuinely good time, much more so than porn performers in films that you see today. And um, I think that is probably the thing that like most captured my interest about those and like keeps me like coming back and Googling this stuff um, like a decade after I first found that it existed. I'm so curious to watch one of these. <laughs> um, I need to I need to like fix my login on this tracker because I haven't been on it in ages, but I'm going to download some and send and send it to both of you because um they're just they're so much fun. Like they're like I told you about this one that is another of my favorites where after the sex is over, they show the couple just like smoking and reading a magazine together in bed. And it's like I I want more like touches of personality like that in today's port you know yeah I like that and yeah I mean I was thinking a bit too just about like ancient porn like cave drawings and like paintings on pots and and stuff like that and how it often just yeah it looks like a very fun party yeah <laughs> just as likely to be oral sex as it is to be penetrative sex and just as likely to be a group sex as one-on-one and yeah just it does there's a sense of of fun to it where like interesting to how one of my old partners was saying how it's just like completely mechanical and he doesn't like care at all about the emotional part of it when he's watching porn or like who the person is and I wonder how modern or if anyone just had those like headless busts that were like just very subtract <laughs> Well, girls, I feel like we have covered a lot in this episode. <laughs> we really have. Um, but I just, I guess I had one little final nomad question, which is where can you bring your vibrator and watch porn when you're on the road? Well, there are definitely some countries where you're not, where they're illegal, aren't there? Like a lot of the countries in Asia. But I am, um, I was one of those people who. Like I used to have a vibrator and then I I bought another one recently. I was one of the the surgeon vibrator purchases during lockdown. So so I've only traveled with that one in Europe, which which I wouldn't worry about. But I think I would I would think twice about taking it to somewhere like Bali or Thailand. Yeah, I know that sex toys are illegal in Thailand and you're not supposed to bring them in. And um the last time I had to think about this, I was actually before the pandemic traveling from Italy to Thailand and I had to toss it, to toss out my vibrator in Rome and I was very sad about that. Um, <laughs> I'm watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer right now though and one of the um, one of the episodes that I recently watched shows her going through her initiation test as the Slayer and she has to kill a vampire without using her superpowers and that's the test. And um, I felt like I was going through a similar thing during that trip to Thailand where I just like had to make do without my preferred weaponry, but I, <laughs> and I thrived and I passed the test and we're all good. <laughs> I can't think of a better place to end the episode. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Abigail, it has been a total pleasure having you on. It's been great being here. Thank you so much for having me on. And now it is time for our final segment of this bumper episode of The Scarlet Text. Lovely. So I mentioned uh, about coronavirus porn and erotica. So I do have 
a recommendation for that. So it is an anthology of erotic short stories called Love in the Time of Corona. Oh, um, cool. Double check that. Yeah. Love in Times of Corona, sorry. Uh, published by Berlinable, which is a Berlin-based uh, erotica publisher. Uh, so yeah, I'm not sure how, I think there's maybe 10 or 15 short stories in there and they are all pandemic themed. I've not read all of them, but I've read some of them and it, it's been interesting for sure to read this pandemic porn. As I was kind of saying in our main discussion, it, it is weird. It does set you up for these situations uh, that almost make erotic encounters easier because everybody is so starved for connection and physical connection uh, that it almost makes the setup easier. And yeah, it's very nice to fantasize about human connection, I think, when we're all apart. That sounds awesome. I think I'm going to download it immediately after we get off Zoom. Excellent. And good thing you're in Europe, so you have your vibrator with you. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you for bearing with us through this extra long and special uh, sex episode, pornographic episode. Uh, next week, we're going uh, perhaps in the opposite direction. We're going to be talking about coronavirus weddings, people who have had coronavirus weddings, people who postponed their weddings indefinitely because of coronavirus, and see how that whole uh, situation has unfolded. I'm excited. Me too. If you do have a wild dating story, send us an email to datingabroadnomads at gmail.com. Or if you want to set one of us up on a virtual date, uh, still not happened and it's already 2021. So get it together. And we'll definitely include clips of it for our patron. That's right. You can also become a patron of the podcast, like our awesome guest this week, Abigail, at patreon.com forward slash dating abroad, where our tiers are named just as wittily as our segments. Benefits start from just $1 a month and range from bonus content to racy to air to monthly soirees and a coaching call with one of us about digital nomad life. We now have seven amazing patrons and as has become tradition here is our limerick about them there once was a girl from toronto who became our patron pronto she was joined by a nomad who is definitely not a bromad and we'll all be a family like the sopranos then came a girl called kiwi who listens to our podcast in germany she was joined by a brit with an eco cleaning kit and a swede who's a big fan of bali next came a lovely canuck who met her beau underground by a truck in came an unsettled man, the first male of our clan. And the rest will have to wait for our next patron. So we are always open to new patrons. Yeah, Sign up got, now. We've got some more good rhymes up our sleeves. So oh, yeah. to be part of our limerick. Our wonderful theme music is by Lee Trung. You can visit her website at leetrung.bandcamp.com I just got her new album it is super super cool to just chill out to or work to highly recommend it awesome and our amazing logo is by Samina who's on Instagram at Samina Scribbles we are also on Instagram dating underscore uh, underscore broad and you can find us on Facebook dating abroad nomads thank you for listening to this special sex episode we'll see you next time Bye. Toodaloo.